0: Josh Hacko is a fourth-generation watchmaker. He says he was born into his vocation, but in reality, his work is truly his own original creation. Josh's family company, Nicholas Hacko Watchmaker, manufactures luxury wristwatches in Sydney, Australia that can cost tens of thousands of dollars. The company can manufacture up to 85% of a wristwatch's components in-house, including the watch's movement a feat that only a handful of independent watchmakers around the world have accomplished. With his team, Josh engineers and machines his watch's components, and he personally creates their designs. If you love a story about business, technology, design, and serendipity, this episode is for you. This is Swarfcast, the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graff. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graff Pinkert, has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit, but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service, Graf Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company. But for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graf Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller, putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to GrafPinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. I'm very honored to be with Josh Hacko, fourth generation watchmaker and technical director of NH Micro and Nicholas Hacko Watchmaker. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hey Noah, nice to see you, nice to talk to you. Thank you, thank you. I met Josh on LinkedIn and he is a very good friend of Josh Shapiro, another uh, watchmaker who I had the pleasure of interviewing a few months ago was one of my favorite interviews and one of the most popular interviews we've had. So, when I met Josh, this Josh, I thought, "Oh, this is this would be a great interview." Let's break into this. Tell me about your two companies real quick just to give some context about what you do.
1: Thanks for the intro, Noah. That's um Yeah, it's it's great to meet you and great to be on the
0: podcast. Um and you have a podcast yourself?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do, I do have a podcast myself. Maybe maybe we can get into that uh, a bit later. But yeah, but it's, I, I, um, but you should
0: plug yourself.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, it's uh, I, I feel so strange about po- plugging myself on that and that podcast. Uh, it's it's a podcast Adam Demuth and and I run. Um, Adam is a toolmaker by trade and a precision uh, machining job shop sort of um, uh, entrepreneur. And he, he's based in Ohio and I'm based in uh, Australia and on the, on the other end of the world. And we'd somehow make a podcast work between the time zones. And we just talk about precision machining and, and all that sort of stuff. But um,
0: yeah, I feel very strange plugging myself. <laughs> so I don't understand why, why are you, why are you, uh, why do you feel bad about plugging your podcast? That's what I, I'm trying to get on other shows to plug my podcast. This is the way to grow. So you, I, I, I think there's no shame in that, and people want to know where they can find you. So, yeah, plug away. Okay, tell me more.
1: Well, my name is Josh Hacko, and um, I'm I'm the technical director. Although it's a very nebulous sort of ambiguous term, um, I'm the technical director of two sister companies. One's called NH Micro, the others Nicholas Hacko Watchmaker, and they both operate outside of the same physical facility, same workshop, same staff, same uh, knowledge base. And where are you talking to me from? I'm I'm based in Sydney, Australia, and our company is uh, uh, on the northern beaches of Sydney. So we're 500 meters or so away from the beach. Uh, Curl Curl Beach is the closest beach and it's a lovely spot in the world. Although I have to say every city is about the same. Sydney is about the same as something like Los Angeles. It's just a A big sprawl. So the Northern beaches is a little tucked away. Maybe bubble is is probably the best way to describe it. Lovely, lovely
0: spot in the world. So tell me just a a brief overview of each company.
1: We're birthed from watchmaking. My, my father is a third generation watchmaker and sort of by proxy being his son makes, makes me a fourth generation, uh, watchmaker (laughs) Uh, It feels a bit strange to say as well, uh, I did do some uh, vocational training under him as a watchmaker, but it was so limited and I only did about two or three years during high school. My real qualification doesn't exist. I'm neither machinist nor engineer nor watchmaker. I just make stuff um, and I might exhibit some characteristics of of all those different trades. I, I actually... Love to refer to myself as just a lowly tradesman because, in the grand scheme of things, and in, in the hierarchy of talent, that's all I am. I just make small things and and try my best to do it.
0: Is there something? Is there such thing as a non-lowly tradesman? <laughs>
1: well, maybe that's maybe that's part of the title as
0: well. Yeah, a non-lowly tradesman.
1: A high but, tradesman. <laughs> uh, well, f- funny you should say. That, I mean, some trades do consider themselves more highly skilled than others. And I do think that there is a, it's a misnomer. It doesn't really exist because you can, you can go down rabbit holes in any single trade. If you're a plumber, you can be a very specific type of plumber. It's a tough job. Every, every job is a tough job. If you apply yourself.
0: It's true. Even if you're a bricklayer, I suppose, like there's a good way to do it and a lousy way to do it. This is
1: so tangential. No, and I'm, I'm sorry to take it this way, but about two years ago, I, I, I was building a granny flat. A granny flat's like a secondary dwelling um, on, on on a sort of a block of land. So it's in the it's my in my, in my parents' backyard. And um, when I say I was building it, I was laboring on the site. So we had actual real life tradesmen come on site, and and I was just lugging dirt around from one side or lugging bricks or lugging building material, um, and I did that for about six months, uh, sort of while I was working, which. In retrospect, I have no idea how it, how it worked out time-wise, but I realized on that building site that every single trade that you're a part of, every single trade gives an opportunity for a person to apply themselves in whichever, the, in whichever level they want to apply it. We saw bad tradesmen on site that were just doing it for the coin. They came on site and wanted to check in, check out, and then we saw amazing tradesmen that – we doing timber framing or roofing or, you know, brick laying, as we, as we just mentioned. And they, they were masters of their trade. They knew every single thing. They knew how to place that brick. So it had the lowest impact on, on their sort of physical movement and had the highest impact on quality. And you could just tell by observing that these guys were, top, top level. And so that's why I think every trade is, you know, (laughs) maybe equally lowly or equally high, but, uh, I never suppose that what I do is in any way better than, than, than an extremely talented bricklayer would, would observe.
0: See, it makes me think kind of, of, uh, like playing instruments, right? Like I've heard people say playing a trumpet is quote unquote harder than playing the guitar, but if you want to be at the top of your game of guitar and the top of your game of exactly trumpet, yes. Um, you know, it can take just as much effort and practice to do that. Absolutely.
1: That's again, I'll take this tangential again. Uh, it, please stop me if you don't like these tangential uh, comments, but, uh, I, I've been playing guitar for about 15 years and uh, I love playing guitar and I've definitely reached some plateaus in, in my journey. And then I start playing another genre of music and I learn more. But recently, about three or four years ago, I started playing a quintessential sort of American country instrument called the pedal steel guitar, which is, uh, some of you might sort of know it as the SpongeBob sound, or maybe that sort of whiny country music sound. It, it, it's it got a very specific sonic signature Anyway, I sat down and I thought that all my skills from playing one type of guitar would translate to the other. And my goodness, tell you what, there's nothing more humbling than learning a new skill, in this case, an instrument. And uh, in my actual job, what I get paid for, what I get salaried for, it feels like that every single day. I'm learning something new and uh, learning, learning a new method maybe or a new process, and I'm constantly humbled. And that teaches you never to be arrogant or tr- try to never be arrogant about about anything. I don't know if you've heard of the
0: phenomenon called the Dunning Kruger effect. Have you? Have you? I have heard, heard that. I have heard before? of it. I feel like I've heard of it recently, and now, but I can't remember what it is. Let me give you
1: like a, a two second explainer, uh, because the Dunning Kruger effect describes my life so perfectly. Basically, when you start a skill, a new skill, you have an elevated sense of self confidence. You often think that you're far better at the skill than you actually are. And that, that, that happens right at the sort of start of your skill journey. And your so your confidence is super high and your experience is super, super low. <clears throat> and what happens very quickly, incredibly quickly, within a day, within a moment even sometimes, is that you realize that you're actually not very good. <laughs> so going into tasks, it takes a lot of forethought to analyze um, and well pre-analyze the situation and say well you know what there's a very low chance that I'm actually naturally gifted at this task there's an extremely high chance that I'm total dirt at this task and I'll have to learn and and and, and sort of uh, uh, extrapolate my skills and practice them and the second part of the Dunning-Kruger effect is the stage that follows
0: this sort of uh catastrophic clash or catastrophic fall of, of self-confidence. So it's, I mean, part of it is be, it's like beginner's luck maybe. Right. Or you feel like, you yeah, have you feel like luck. you have beginner's luck. Exactly. But after, after
1: you sort of lose that self-confidence, it takes a very long time and it's just a gentle, slow slope. And uh, you have this like moment of self-realization where you say, "Oh, actually, you know what? I'm i have been humbled. I have to approach this uh, with fresh sets of eyes and and slowly regain my confidence as my experience. And it tracks very linearly with your experience. So your confidence grows only as quickly as you as as you can apply uh, time into your into your task. And in machining specifically, I mean that's that's my day to day. I know we talked about instruments and building and trades and all the rest. But in, in machining, I see that every single day in myself. Right, so
0: you get, that's, that's where I thought we were going to segue into it too. So for instance, maybe, maybe you <laughs> yeah. know how to run a Citizen hmm. and then a Citizen Swiss machine. And then you go to like a vertical lathe and you better like get your brain together and go, <laughs> okay, I'm going in and this is – you know people might say oh it's just a single spindle lathe maybe it's easier but go into it and like have a fresh state of mind is that what you're what you're getting at absolutely so like some people call that ego death
1: some people call that like a recalibration of of uh, of ego but that's the easiest way in my experience and i've i've only been in this trade for like 8 years so oh, i'm wow. i'm extremely green How super old are you? fresh i just turned 26 two days ago
0: so go on. You got these two companies. They both have machines, both some some similar ones, um, various types of CNC machines. Which one do you want to start with uh, as far as the watches or the other one? Is the other one a job shop? Yeah. Yeah.
1: We can start with the watches and, and the story naturally progresses into, into the second company, okay, NH Micro. So your great,
0: so. great grandfather started... Was a watchmaker and he was in Yugoslavia?
1: Uh-huh. Yep. In former Yugoslavia. So uh, Mihailo was his name and he was uh, a watchmaker trained to repair watches for sort of mass commodity level mechanical wristwatches. And that was a trade in the same way that bricklaying and jib rocking and all those other trades were so he went to trade school
0: and we're talking like the the
1: 1800s (laughs) maybe not that early so he he started oh i want to say 1946
0: when you say that i'm thinking in the 40s 30s i think watches would be sort of a higher i mean when i was thinking 1800s i was thinking whoa watches that's that's like the equivalent of computers way back in the day you know like it's, it's a higher trade to me than, and more elegant, say, than a, a bricklayer. No offense to bricklayers. I think
1: that's what watchmaking companies nowadays want to create an image of. That's probably where the the mass media comes in and says, "Well, it better
0: be because you're gonna because you're gonna pay that much." So I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's there's a there's a definite
1: concerted marketing effort to elevate the history and the heritage of watchmaking, which is in many cases, true. But for my great-grandfather in former Yugoslavia, that was not the case. He was trained to repair watches as quickly as possible in a very high quality, nothing against the quality. But he was repairing watches that had only one purpose, which was to tell the time cheap. And in the same way that we have iPhones telling the time on every person's pocket, but Apple watches on every person's wrist, they're fairly commodity items. You can you know, purchase an Apple watch every two years. The same can be said for mechanical wristwatches during that period. So they were very, very prolific. And um, his training came from really mass diagnosis and mass repair of, of these watches. And that's an incredible skill. That's something that's actually lost today in the sense that the watch repair and this is a whole nother facet of watchmaking, but watch repair I is... Met,
0: I met a watch repair guy one time who called about a machine and I, it, it's a pretty tight commodity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, people in the watch repair industry are, are the biggest resource, the, the human resource, the watchmakers sitting behind the benches are so valuable. And the companies in, in America and in Switzerland and in, in Germany and Japan, they're starving for people. So... Um, if you want to get into the trade, young people, <laughs> uh, it's a perfect entry. You have, you know, your choice of, you could move all the way across the world in, in Australia, into the U S into Germany and, and become a watch repair. If
0: you can find somebody to train you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's one big hurdle.
1: So, um, yeah, th- that's where the company started, but, um, that progressed until, uh, the sort of early nineties where my father was, um, uh, sort of displaced from his home country. He moved to Australia in 1994 uh, due to the sort of disassembly of Yugoslavia, let's call it that. And um, Was he from Croatia, from from Serbia, from where? So he's mixed. He's truly Yugoslavian. My my entire family is truly Yugoslavian. So he's half Croat, half Serb. My mom comes from the northern part of Serbia where there's Hungarian influence. She's ethnically Ruthenian, which is uh, like a ultra-small uh, diaspora of, of Slavic people that have come from the north. And so, so it's it's truly a mix. And there was no place for them in a nationalistic environment anymore. When your identity is not A, B, or C, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Get the heck out. In one word, um, you don't have a place where it's just A people or B people. And uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there.
0: <laughs> they. So your dad came uh-huh. and then... Did he come with his father as well? No. Or?
1: So um, he was the first generation to emigrate into Australia. Um, he had some sort of slightly more distant family that was was already here in a, in a previous wave of emigration, sort of post-World War immigration. But his father, so my dad's dad and, and the rest of that family. You're not Jewish, are you? Well, uh, on my mother's side. Yes uh, so it's my mum's mum is Jewish uh, but not practicing Jewish no. so we're, we're, it's it's funny like it's I get asked
0: that because I've got curly hair and, and but, if, but and if you were in Germany fair skin and blue if eyes, you were but, in Germany in the 1940s they would have taken you to a concentration camp. for
1: sure. Just by virtue of me being non-German, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) You know, that's the qualification for getting into Israel. If Hitler would have killed you, then you're Jewish enough to go to Israel, or at least that traditionally was. Your dad came to Yugoslavia. He went and got another watchmaking company going, continued the family business. Is that how it happened?
1: That's a... About what's happened in the last 20, 30 years. But um, obviously, that's gone through many journeys. He started off um, doing watch, watch repair and then watch buying and selling, so secondhand dealing of, of high grade Swiss mechanical watches. And, and fundamentally, that's actually our core business. So if you look at the sort of PL statement, that's where you know we've spent selling used watches that's right that's right so we we um we've done that for the longest time ah so you're a treasure hunter like me yeah exactly so uh, although that's not my specific role um our, our company is is definitely quite strong in, in what we do there maybe I'll sort of uh, preface preface the start of the watchmaking company we were always in watch repair R- watch repair was is the foundation of all of our businesses. So buying and selling, for example, hinges on watch repair. It's it's um, sort of like being a, uh, a mechanic and being able to sell some cars that you come across because you're able to repair them, because you're able to diagnose what's wrong. Right. And um, that's an incredibly yeah. important skill.
0: Do you have watch repair? You have that skill? Uh, well, I did do about two
1: and two and maybe even two and a half years under my dad focusing on that. Um, it's been about seven years or eight years since I've practiced it. Uh, it's definitely something you have to spend time on repeatedly. If I was to go back to the bench and do watch repair, I'd be hopeless. And that's that's the reality of practicing that skill. But in saying that, in our company, we've got watchmakers that do that full time and uh, we've allocated the role.
0: <laughs> but... How do you get the used watches?
1: Uh, well, we have a huge uh, database of collectors and clients. And generally, watches get sold to us uh, from collectors that want to dispose of their collections or upgrade their collections uh, or from people having unwanted gifts. And sometimes we, we happen on collections of watches just by by existing. So, you know, someone will search up watch dealer and then have a watch to sell and then walk in off the street. So it's, it's a bit sporadic, but, uh, we sell, buy and sell about nearly a thousand watches a year. And we do, um, we do a lot
0: of other stuff. (laughs) And how much do these watches cost? Um, the ones that you buy and sell, what's the range? In general, um, the range that we stick to.
1: So watchmaking again, this is such a big, big topic, uh, comes in these price tiers, right? So you can buy and sell watches that are a hundred dollars. You can buy and sell watches that are a thousand dollars and then 10,000 and a hundred thousand and a million. And each tier, uh, logarithmically, you know, you, you sort of reduce the volume. You could, you could buy and sell a hundred thousand watches at a hundred bucks each, but your margin might be, you know, 5% or something. So, um, our price range that we stick to is between uh, about three or four thousand to about twenty thousand Australian dollars. So most of the watches are in that range. So buying and selling watches—that's sort of what we 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 did for. Well, my father did for about twenty years. Um, watch repair was always a foundation of that. So thirty percent of all of the revenue for a very very long time was in watch repair. So that's our own stock, but also. Customers that would come in and say, "Hey, I've got this Rolex; it's due for an overhaul. Are you able to service it?" And we'd always say yes, or at least try to say yes. And
0: that's how you get, and that's that's how you find
1: new customers. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. They're coming in for that. That's a that's a that's um. There's a word for it. It's like um customer entry point in the customer journey, or something like that. Uh, If I was more in tune with marketing, I'd probably know that better. But um, in 2011, everything changed, Uh, and this is sort of foundational shifting point in our, in our company history, basically large Swiss corporations, conglomerates like Richmond Group, Swatch Group, Rolex, they decided that they would start to monopolize the service industry for watchmaking. So they stopped the supply, they restricted the supply of spare parts to independent watchmakers. The equivalent of this is if you're a mechanic and I think this is something that everyone can relate to. You go to a mechanic that's, you know, your Ford dealership mechanic or you've got your guy down the road that you've been dealing with, with you know, for 30 years. Uh, it'd be like the guy down the road not being able to source spark plugs, windscreen wipers, tires, all the basic elements. And I'm not talking engine blocks, I'm talking the basic elements that that you need to have in your stock arsenal. To be able to repair and service high-grade Swiss mechanical watches and that stopped in 2011 all the Swiss companies got together and said you know what we want to monopolize this we want to introduce uh, a new system and they did this pretty much overnight in Sydney there were watchmakers so it was like a cartel yeah absolutely it's a cartel and it went to the it went to the Swiss courts it went to international courts in America uh, it's, it's sort of that right to repair movement that has, has um, sort of bucked against that trend of uh, the cartelization. And um, this killed our service and repair industry overnight. Within one day, basically, maybe a week, but it felt like a day, uh, we were not able to continue that business. 30% of the revenue was, was completely wiped. And that was the birth of our watchmaking company. <laughs> because my dad, in his uh, infinite sort of um, – drive and determination said you know what like these people they don't want me to repair watches well I'll prove it to them that I can repair watches uh and and the preface to that is that I was about mm, 2011 I think I was maybe 13 14 at that time I think I think that's right yeah and uh, he said my my son he's young I'm going to send him to Switzerland he's going to do your courses um, He's going to spend four years. He'll leave an apprentice at Rolex or Richmond Group or Swatch Group. When he comes back to Australia and he sets up his own workshop, this is all hypothetical, when he sets up his own workshop, buys all uh, the equipment, okay. buys everything, <laughs> will you at that point, you know, a genuine Swiss-trained watchmaker at that point, will you supply him spare parts? And the response from large Swiss corporations was, and, and this is pretty much, you know, word for word, They said, no, no Australian watchmaker will ever be good enough to repair brand X watches. and uh, Because you're Australian blood. (laughs) Possibly. Possibly the Australian blood, possibly just um, total bean counting nearsightedness. um, Very nearsightedness. And that rubbed my dad the wrong way. And he said, well, screw you guys. And I think in much more colorful language than that. But he said, screw you guys. If I if you think that I can't repair a watch, I'm going to make a watch, and that's infinitely harder. Making a watch is you know it's a completely different skill set. It's a completely different journey. And that was 2011, and here we are in 2023. Um, it's been a long journey, and we
0: But your dad knew your dad knew watches so well that he had the balls to say, you know, "F you, I'm going to try it."
1: Pretty much, and and
0: and honestly. We talked
1: about the Dunning Kruger effect. We didn't know what we didn't know. There were so many unknown unknowns at that point. In 2011, I didn't know what an end mill was. Heck, in 2016, when we started the manufacturing side of our journey, I didn't know what an end mill was. And so there was a massive, massive learning curve that, excuse me, that if I had known in 2016, if I had known how tough, this whole industry was going to be and how, how tough this journey would have been, I would never would have started. So the Dunning-Kruger effect in many ways, <laughs> you know, we, we talked about it so negatively at the start, but it actually allowed us to, to naively set, set forward this, this whole company into motion. And um, I, I'm not shy to talk about numbers. You know, the numbers are pretty clear for us. It's, it's a multi, multi-million dollar effort to do what we've done which is to make watches in Australia. The Swiss, in many different publications, in in writing, but also there's some amazing industry talks, the Swiss describe making watches, making a new watch costs a million Swiss franc a year in development, in research, in execution. I can attest after 11 years in the the trade, that's an extremely accurate number. And um, if we didn't have that money, to invest and and to not take profits out of the company and to constantly reinvest, then this whole effort would have crumbled. So it, it's a testament to my dad. Really, he's, uh, he's an incredible visionary when it comes to finding an opportunity, finding a a, a, a gap in the market. Let's let's say, but um, his main skill that he that he always says at least. He tries to always say is, um, it's a team effort. It's a constant team effort where your goal is only as achievable as how well you can assemble a team, and that's what his main priority has been over the last twelve years. Doesn't matter what I'm trying to say, and I'll say it much more simply. Doesn't matter how much money you have if you don't have a team. That's it. You can you can you can go back to the drawing board. So. Um, I know I've talked a lot, but that's the that's the rough uh, genesis of our company. And and in 2016, that's probably the next pivotal moment. Between 2011 and 2016, we produced about seven hundred, maybe eight hundred watches that were not manufactured by us. We did the design.
0: How much do they cost? The ones that you produce. Um,
1: so there's two distinct phases of our company. The first phase is where we where we Designed, assembled, and adjusted the watch. We didn't do the manufacturing. Those watches cost about 2000 Australian dollars, roughly.
0: Okay. 2011, you guys said we're changing. When did you first come up with the new watch? Um, the first generation. Yeah, it's,
1: it's very uh, organic what happened. We didn't plan nearly anything. In 2016, the only thing we planned was the st- start of the journey. All we said was we have to start making things in Australia.
0: What happened between 11 and 16? So
1: between 2011 and 2016, we uh, sourced all of our components from 11 or 12 international suppliers. So we had German components, Swiss components, Taiwanese, uh, Chinese, Japanese components, all from from around the world um, from a bill of materials that we designed. And then we assembled those components and sold that watch. So nothing was made in Australia. And uh, that watch was at that price point at $2,000 because we leveraged a sort of a larger supply chain. And uh, it was a very different type of watch as well. It was it was hitting a different market. But it, it allowed us to sort of f- not flex the muscles in, in some like a, a peacocking way, but it allowed us to, to learn. How do you how do you build a brand? How do you start a company? How do you? And we'd already had a lot of administrative experience running companies, but nothing like a luxury goods watchmaking company. And in 2016, things started to change again because I was uh, sort of coming out of well, I was in second year, my second year of university by that point, but I was I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and um, I was very hands-on, extremely sort of focused. I was building guitar amplifiers and doing woodworking and sort of trying to figure out It's in your blood. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's in the blood. Yeah. It's definitely at the dinner table because whatever my mom fed me helped <laughs> for sure. Um, horizontally, but also in my hand skills. <laughs> we were sort of at a point where I was bustling and, and and with energy and trying to help the company. And Dad said, Well, okay, there's this young kid. Let's give him let's give him an opportunity. And we said not we," he said. Uh, "Let's start manufacturing some things in Australia, and the overall uh, goal was to make an Australian manufactured watch. Um, so again, an extremely ambitious goal. Uh,
0: now, in retrospect, but it started with that. With that, and that means doing all the mechanical yes. parts, the back end, yes, or the, the movement, movement, as they. I learned with jo- Josh's exactly, podcast. exactly, and your dad, of course new watches like it was in his blood so he had an idea of what that meant didn't know how hard it would be but he knew what it meant well
1: i can give you i can give you an example i mean we when you he knew the ins and outs of a mechanical watch of how to diagnose a fault what works in terms of design what doesn't work but we had very little idea of how to make things so in 2016 our plan was to buy a watchmaking machine a machine where you put material in one end and a watch comes out the other. That was our that was idea our idea of manufacturing. Does that exist? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> Nothing even close exists. And that's that was a learning experience for us. Um, and and we said, okay, you know, we learned that very quickly, extremely quickly. What else are we going to learn? And since 2016, it's actually been all about learning. All about learning. We've never had a year where we haven't learned something.
0: It sounds like you and sounds like you enjoy. It sounds like you enjoy the process of the learning. Uh, absolutely, learning something new is is, uh, is is is
1: addicting. It's the drug that keeps me like engaged. You know, I've got this sort of. I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, I see it in in our staff, for example. That they're never doing the same thing more than a couple of days at a time you know uh, our our quantities our volumes for what we produce today are very low we produce between you know 100 and maybe 150 watches a year sort of at the maximum and that means that every two or three days you switch tasks and you learn a different thing and you learn a different process and and these guys in our factory in, in our well workshop not really a factory but they 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 love learning new things so, sort of to wrap up the journey up till today, between 2016 and, and today, we've really, really focused in on how do you make things? How do you, how do you make things well? That's been our focus. And granted, you cannot approach something as complex as watchmaking without being so focused. You have to have a laser attitude towards making things right because on one hand, you're making an incredibly, like, I don't think people understand an incredibly demanding mechanical object. I mean, if you build a car, the performance of the car is almost masked to the end user. It's ambiguous. Yeah, it moves and, and you can drive quickly and drive slowly and it has to sort of work, but you've got these service intervals. But a watch, the end user has a direct reading of the efficiency and the Function of the watch, the time is the is the the ultimate measuring device of the of the capability of the watch. So if if your end user, so a client, for example, wears a watch and it's running ten seconds fast or ten seconds slow, they can see that. It's you're on display. You're you're laying prostrate in front of the entire
0: world, saying, "Well, this is me." Because you have an iPhone next to you. You have an iPhone next to you that's on the atomic clock and. and- it would be like
1: the equivalent for machinists listening to this podcast. It would be like if every single customer had the most accurate CMM waiting at the, fa- the factory floor that you're sending your parts to. So every single feature that you've made on on whatever you've made gets checked so thoroughly that you have no place to hide. And that's scary. That's a very scary thought. So the demands mechanically are extremely high. What Another example relating it back to cars is, is it's as if you put your car in first gear and left it in first gear for five years at a time. That's the mechanical demand of a watch. It's constantly on and it's constantly wearing itself out. So you, you have no place to hide mechanically if your watch does
0: not perform. Are you talking like manual transmission now? Yeah. That's what it would be. <laughs> okay, I don't know how to drive okay. the manual <laughs> transmission, but I get I get what you're saying. It's a very you, it's difficult to keep it yeah, in first gear. Very
1: challenging, impossible. And then you've got this. So that's one facet: the mechanical demands of a watch. And the second facet is the aesthetic demands. The more expensive your watch becomes, the more perfect it has to become. There's no such thing as perfection. By the way, let me just put it out there. There's just an attempt at perfection, you know, a pursuit. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey and it's never a goal because you can always get better. And watchmaking is very much like that. You You are aiming for an extremely lofty goal. There are objective levels of quality, but you have to hit them or else, you know, your old, your, all your components that you've made are there on someone's wrist and they can pull out a loop or a magnifying glass anytime they want and start inspecting the quality. And so we're talking about surface finishes, we're talking about uh, construction, so aesthetic sort of like design elements. Um, and so you have this marrying of these two concepts that are usually very, very far apart. Very rarely do you have high, high level mechanical demands and high level aesthetic demands combined into one component and uh it's you know maybe you have them on larger parts ferrari oh yeah ferrari that's a perfect perfect example actually it's a luxury good where someone's got really really high expectations and you have to meet them both mechanically and aesthetically but in, in general engineering it just doesn't happen that often um so to loop back uh, the one thing we learned was to achieve those two parallel goals at the same time, you must have laser focus on learning. You must be able to constantly evolve your manufacturing process, constantly be buying the next piece of equipment, the best CNC machines that you can to, to push yourselves to the, to the highest level of, of capability. And um, we're trying to achieve that in Sydney, Australia.
0: Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover SwarthCast. And I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media, or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. Tell me about that. You know, I've seen some LinkedIn posts and I see photos. You have a Kern, which Josh Shapiro also had. You have a Citizen, Ro 4 you know, those are, you know, fantastic machines, you say. Some people would say, well, it's not totally about the machine. It's about the person who's who's running it. But you believe it's imperative to have the best, the best, the best. I think um, it helps. Which is which is subjective. It sometimes. is. Yeah, absolutely. Of which one yeah. to choose. But
1: I, I see it as, as a precision chain. And your chain is only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. It's an analogy that we've heard, you know, a few times sort of in our lives with, you know, you're the weakest link. That's something that's ingrained in my head, but your your chain is only as strong as the weakest link. And so I approaching this as a, as a fresh green machinist wannabe in 2016, I recognized, or at least my dad recognized very early on if you're capital investment, you're putting your money down, half a million dollars, a million bucks, you want to make sure that that link where you're introducing the highest level of capital expenditure, you want to make sure that that link is as strong as it can be. And that's I'm talking about machine tools, right? So if, if you successfully eliminate errors that are caused by machines, you can then Totally focus on all the other links of that chain, your temperature control. That's true. You can, you can start talking about.
0: That's true. You're not. You're, that makes total sense. Why did you, and now, you know, uh, some of this stuff's subjective, you know, why citizen versus star or, or something from Switzerland? This is partly personal preference.
1: Um, it's, it's a really good question. And specifically on our Citizen R04, it was the first machine we bought.
0: And we were really naive. Describe to people who, you know, aren't that familiar with that machine. Okay. Describe what it, you know, so it's it's four millimeter. Yep. It's, g- give us give us like the, a brief description of it.
1: The Citizen R04 is a four millimeter maximum diameter bar capacity machine. So it, it, it excels at making parts that are smaller than four millimeters. And uh, it's a very compact machine. It's quite small. Um, The footprint is probably less than 1.5 square meters for the machine. And obviously, the bar feeder is quite quite long. But uh, it's designed for making pins and screws and other small cylindrical objects uh, that often go into watchmaking. But you've got Strong use within the medical sector, within within uh, uh, sort of electri- electronics for making connection connection pins for for connectors, jewelry uh, maybe. Yeah, probably some jewelry applications, but I'm not 100 percent sure on what they would be. But f- within the watchmaking sector, Citizen's very well regarded. Many many of our suppliers that we were using between 2011 and 2016 and still use today use Citizens, especially the R04.
0: Well, and it's a a watch company.
1: Yeah, it is a watch company, exactly. So they started off making watches and they made machines to help them make watches as well. So we were extremely naive going into the purchasing of that machine. We were like one or two months out from thinking that there was a watchmaking machine You know that
0: that was just a fresh realization you thought there was one machine that could make all the different parts on that (laughs) machine well
1: that was yeah that was that was our assumption almost going into that purchasing decision obviously that was broken
0: like a three a 3d a 3d printer or yeah i mean Um, how could one machine make all the i would have thought that would make no sense since you knew so much about the parts in the watch How could you think that there'd be one machine that would do that? That's a really good question. And I think it highlights
1: our naivety. It highlights how little we knew about manufacturing and how much we knew about, you know, watch repair and watch sort of making in in quotation marks.
0: Uh, And it highlights the same. So did you train yourself on the Citizen? Yes. I mean, or did Citizen came in and provide you training? That was how you learned?
1: Well, Citizen provided us training on how to use the machine the basic functions and some we did a turn a few turnkey parts as well but we quickly realized that to become proficient at the machine you had to you had to spend some time and and in 2016 we tried to choose a machine that was going to allow us to do the most amount of parts right obviously not the whole watch at that at that time we realized that but we went to Stuttgart in Germany at the AMB fair in 2016 and
0: uh uh-huh, okay been there yeah
1: yeah fantastic fair it's a bit smaller than than something like emo um or imts or, or imts yeah it's it's um, maybe about half the size or two-thirds of the size anyway we went to to the fair
0: it's more it's more turn more turning i think i think so bit, yeah maybe. i haven't been in, in a little while but i think so so you went there we, and you discovered yeah what? we went there and we discovered
1: Citizen. And we said, oh, that's interesting. We also saw Tornos. We saw Tsugami. We saw all the other brands. We saw Star. And for whatever reason, I still don't truly know to this day, but we, I think it may have been price oriented. Uh, we said, yeah, this is the machine. It, it had all the sample parts that it had some watchmaking screws that were being run, had some like a watchmaking stem, which is another pretty, pretty fancy part to make. And we bought the machine on the, on the show floor. That's how naive we were. We paid cash that day on the show floor. Like that never happens. Maybe 30 years ago, but very, very enthusiastic, but also very naive. Wouldn't
0: it have made more sense to buy one in Australia that you wouldn't have to ship yeah, well, across the ocean? Exactly. Why didn't we do that?
1: I don't know. We, we just didn't. And uh, later it would come to light that there's no support in Australia. Only very recently in the last like two or three months, has citizen been taken on by like a proper agent in Australia. Um, so
0: I thought that was one of the main reasons you chose
1: it. (laughs) No. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's so crazy. Like we didn't have any local support for six years. It was the only R04 in the country. Still is the only, only R04. I guess this story, it's, uh, it's pretty emblematic of how naive we were. And we were right on that peak of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And, and I love that. I love that because without that sort of naivety, we would never have started. So it's this, it's a dual pull one, one side, you've got like knowledge holding you back and then you've got, uh, ignorance, arrogance, and ego pushing
0: you forward. And, uh, we're here only because of both. And so what was the harder part, the harder part? What's the harder part, the creating the luxury and selling the watch or actually making the damn thing, um, both super hard, both are challenging. Both are
1: challenging, but I would say from a technical perspective, and I'm a technical guy, uh, building a watch is much harder than building a brand. You have many, many brands out there that don't make anything. And we did that. We did that for five years where we didn't make anything. And realistically, like objectively, when you look at it, it's very easy. It's very, very easy to go to all your suppliers and say, yep, I'm going to buy this, buy that, buy that. But to actually make something, from design, to raw material, to manufacturing, to finishing, to assembly, that is a big, big challenge. And I would say, in my humble opinion, that is where substance and actual true value comes from. And that's a very, very big topic. What is value in a luxury goods world? But in my opinion, value comes from artisans. It comes from in, in what I like to call modern artisanal watchmaking where people are actually making
0: something. Wow. Because to me it seems like it's something that provides you purpose and pleasure and excitement. It's there's there's easier ways to produce something to make money perhaps than a luxury watch. You do it for more than one reason, you know. You do it because it makes sense that this is this is a passion.
1: For me, I wake up and I go to work and it has never Ever felt like work. It's always felt like. Oh my like. God. You're so, you're, you're so blessed. Yeah, I'm, I'm the luckiest person on earth and there's not a day where I am not grateful for that. And it's, um it's something, it's actually very challenging for me to grapple uh, because I fell into this. I, I didn't have, I had no choice as well. I mean, this is the other facet of it. I'm a, I, I'm a son of a third generation watchmaker to think that I had the illusion of choice you know, I was predestined for this in this family. You,
0: you always have well, a choice. Well,
1: maybe, but it would it would have been catastrophic for our family if I chose else. <laughs> uh, well, do you have a no, sibling? Well, I have a half-sister that she's, she's not involved um, uh, in, in the family business. And for me, I grapple with that every day because I've landed into something. Obviously, yes, there is a choice with everything. I agree. But, you know, I've landed in this. And it feels like pleasure. It feels like fun. And it feels weird to be able to do this and you know exist in this world that's driven by money when my my life my my day to day is is passion filled. And then I mean that's the first facet of me personally in my vocation. And the second facet, which I find so fascinating, and, and it's and I'm trying to wrap my head around over the last seven years, is that there is an artistic, creative expression that I find. That I can exhibit in my work, in my in my day to day work, that is fulfilling on a almost spiritual level. I'm creating something from nothing, and it's purely driven by some some neurons that are firing off in my brain. And uh, art, that's the pinnacle of self actualization on, on Maslow's hierarchy. You know, it's in my mind at least. Art is is right up there with with what you're psyche, your soul wants to do. You're, you're creatively
0: expressing I'm trying to remember what Maslow's hierarchy is. That's the that's the what the most important needs that we have in life and and then people put money too high on the hierarchy because that's just a means to an end. And right, that's that's what yeah, it Yeah so is, you've right? got like the base okay. of the pyramid. I did hear a podcast about it recently. I was trying, the base of the and art is is to you the top or is Maslow say that art uh, is the top for me for me
1: I, i'm not going to pretend the, that it's for everyone else but for me like the artistic actualization of this job is uh, a treat of all treats the fact that i can create art and the fact that it can be that it can be worn on people's wrists not just locked up in a gallery
0: is is really really special yes yeah that's true all right so i i You, you have the citizen and then you have some other, you have some other toys. No, this is, I mean, this is the real, this is the heart of what we're talking about. I mean, it's incredible. I reflect on this stuff all the time in our industry. So much of what people make our customers as used machinery dealers, our listeners, you can look at it as, as a total commodity. You can look at it as the, this is a pin whatever. But you can also go deeper and you can figure out what this goes into and the importance of it. And there are parts that are a lot easier to do that for than others. You know, it's a lot easier if you know that this is going to go into a syringe that's going to vaccinate people who want to be vaccinated. But, you know, what you're making takes that in my opinion, you know, to an even higher level. At, that said, some people might disagree. Some people might say, "Well, watch, it's just sort of an elective thing. It's not an. It's not uh, an essential item." But either way, there's and the same thing with selling machines. Like it, it for me, it's so easy to just get. All right, let's let's get one for this price, and we can flip it for. X price and you're not really thinking about what the heck it's making or what it's doing for the economy or you know the depth of it all it seems like what's so cool about what you're doing is you're really feeling it you're feeling that it's tangible it's it's right in front of your eyes this art and it's going to be on people's wrists so it's twofold you know it's got utility but more importantly, it's expression, it's jewelry. Are you doing you yourself doing a lot of the designing? Uh, well, the design is a team effort between my my father and I. I might come up with
1: concepts, and he might come up with com- concepts or a direction, and we'll iterate together. Design is very challenging. It's not as difficult as you know this whole conversation we've been talking about manufacturing or elements of manufacturing, and it's and I'm trying to explain how tough that's all been learning that. Design is the same challenge. It's just in a different, different sort of sphere. And making something that is pleasing and looks good, but also you know congruous with a with a brand identity, very, very challenging. And and you see it in in all types of you know, design. Companies that start off often morph and and
0: shift and have different design languages as different people are designing. Are the two things though diametrically is diametrically the right word diametrically opposed the 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 technical engineering of the part and the artistic design or Hmm. it's a good question I I don't feel
1: properly equipped to talk about design authoritatively but my opinion at in August 2023 that's (laughs) that's all we have yeah but my opinion as of today is that uh the best design that I've seen and that I've exhibited is design without constraint. So where you're not thinking about how something's made, or you're not thinking about how it's going to be scalable and all that, you just design it. And then however it gets made, that's how it gets made. Now, the caveat to that is that everything has a price. And if you design something that, especially engineering wise, that is impossible to manufacture, you're, you're an idiot. You shouldn't have done that. So there's this feedback loop that you
0: have to have. But the best creative ideas come from a, a restraint-free environment. See, that's so interesting because I've always thought of it as totally different than that. I've always thought of it as, you know, when, when you're trying to come up with a creative idea, say you want to write a book, write a blog post, or paint a picture, if you can do anything you want, then you it's like hard to come up with something to do. You need some kind of framework, some kind of constraint to get this creative juice flowing. And I know you say that you don't have constraints. You have constraints. You have the constraints of this is going into a watch. It's true. Yeah, yeah. This is, This is going into a watch. You're not like painting a canvas that, you know. But I see what you're saying. If I if I can summarize what you're saying is yes, you're thinking in the framework of a watch, but at when you're first coming up with the concept, don't limit yourself. Don't edit yourself immediately. Let your mind run free and then after that, make it work. Is that what you're saying? Yep, absolutely. As
1: of August 2023, ask me in a month and I might completely change my mind,
0: but uh
1: because I, well, the reason why, the reason why, and I'll, and I'll tell you the backstory. I used to design from a from a from a place of design for manufacturing, and that's probably because I was so obsessed with how things were made, and I still am today. But what that meant was that my design was always my language was always crippled. It was always handicapped by some process that I that I either didn't have or I wanted to use. And I found myself going down these really defined ruts which causes problems it causes more problems than you, you than you might think you can't develop design language and you can't develop proper ideation in terms of art artistic expression and uh, as soon as I lifted those restraints and I said you know what I'll figure how, I'll figure out how to make this when I do when I get to that point suddenly things started flowing a lot more easily and um, I get it that makes total sense it's not Defined again, you know, I, I'm constantly designing, like I spend about maybe about two hours a week dedicated on the next projects. So it's sort of R and
0: D literal design R and D and, um, it's a skill. So before it was sort of utility, you, it was almost utilitarian. It was like, how's this design going to fit with the way this absolutely. works? And I can see how that would definitely hold you back. Yes.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Moving from a utilitarian mindset is, um, yeah, one of the one of the key things that has happened in the last six years. Yeah.
0: So when you um, sit down to design something, what inspiration are you? Are you looking at other watches? Are you, you know, does it come from an amazing podcast you (laughs) listen to? Is it Um, called Swarfcast?
1: (laughs) Well, it's a good question. Instagram inspiration. Comes and goes, like vapor in the sky. You know, it, it, it's it, it's extremely transient, and you might you you might never find inspiration in the same topic twice. Uh, I can I can give you I can give you some really concrete examples. Our, our most recent watch, it's called the Mark II, and it's a watch that we've sort of I would say it's called an entry level watch, but it's a terrible term to use. It's it's really our flagship model. That watch was purely inspired by the natural landscape directly around us. We we have the beach 500 meters. Do you have that watch with you? Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> so this is the watch. It's a all right, let's... It's oh, so challenging on webcam to show, but um, if someone goes to our Instagram, they'll be they'll you'll recognize it almost instantly. And that and this watch, um, you know, the, the beach is 500 meters away, and there are a lot of elements in the beach, around the beach, that uh, inspired elements of this watch. So I can go into really concrete examples. There's a, there's a decorative pattern applied to the dial on this watch called, it's a pattern. Josh Shapiro is a master at, at guilloche, right? Or engine turning. And uh, we have a pattern that, you know, maybe it's been done before, but we executed it from the inspiration gained by the, the waves on the beach. And we're calling this pattern curl-curl waves. Curl-curl is the beach that's 500 meters away.
0: Can you point to that on the face of the watch? Or I can try. I can try.
1: It's on the face of the watch and, and it's right in the center. Wow. You can see it sort of reflecting around. And, so that, and it's also on the case back, although that's actually a bit more challenging to see. Then you know the hands of the watch that tell the time, as well as the individual indices, the sort of the hour markers. They have a decorative pattern applied to them that we we well we invented in house, but it's probably think like you know hopefully never been done before, and we're calling that feathering, and it's uh, it's a grinding pattern that evokes the forms of feathers. If, and the feathers of coastal birds on the northern beaches of Sydney. So things like that inform design. You know, they're inspired elements. But on the other hand, the watch that I'm sort of working on in the back of my mind, which might you know, come to existence in about two years' time, so it's not, it's not this is a peek behind the curtain. You know, you're seeing how the sausage is made in terms of design. I was having dinner with my wife one year ago, and we sat down in Manly Beach at a restaurant called Momo Bar, this is the first time I think I've even mentioned this, but we were sitting down at this restaurant and I looked at this table. It's a beautiful table. It was, it was a mosaic patterned table with all these intricate ceramic tiles on it. And I just took a photo. I said, this, this is perfect. This is, I want this. I, I want this in my house. I don't like watch dials. They came to my mind later on, but I said, this is a beautiful pattern. It sat in my photo album for a year. And it was in the back of my head every now and then, every couple of months, I would think, oh, that was a beautiful table. And, every, and this is you know, our local sort of very close to where we live, our local sort of go-to restaurant. So every time I walked past, I said, "Ah, right, here's that beautiful table again. Just three weeks ago, I started the, the whole design process of turning that table, the mosaic table into a watch dial. And I don't know that that's that's how do you how the hell do you plan that you can't just go around Manly Beach looking at tables <laughs> like and it will never happen again. So the common thread that I think happens in both of those stories of inspiration is that you have to actually open your mind. You have to you have to allow your mind to be inspired. If I walked around thinking about CNC machines, I never would have seen that table.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so, no, it's and that's what I talk about a lot on the podcast and when I'm interviewed is serendipity, which is what, you know, and that's the key to the machinery business. You have to have your eyes open and be thinking about seeing that thing. If you just have tunnel vision and just being thinking about the meal or whatever and not looking at the table, yeah. you're going to miss out. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So that's where a lot of your inspiration comes from. Have you hired designers in the past as well no just like- we've never we've never had anyone external
1: part of the reason is that have you considered that yes but not uh, it's never actually gone past the the thought of hiring someone I don't think we're at the stage I, I well let me let me backtrack a bit we're, we're still figuring out production problems you know making a hundred watches a year doesn't allow room for more design where our bottleneck is not creating new designs, it's creating new watches or creating more watches. And as soon as we figure that problem out, and it's, you know, we're on on track for that, as soon as we figure out stable production, and as soon as we can, we can expand our collection, our library of watches that we that we produce, then more design is is welcome.
0: And you're making I I saw on online, and this, I think was an old article, it said, you're making 85% of the watch? Is that what you're doing? Are you doing a hundred percent now or what, what is that?
1: Uh, so, so we have a few different models. Um, and you know, out the Mark two that we just talked about, we use a Swiss movement there and we make the dial, the hands and some elements of the case that watch, you know, we probably make 25%, or 30% of that watch.
0: Swiss movement, movement meaning the movement comes from Switzerland, it's from okay.
1: Switzerland. That's right. We import that and we use a very, very reliable, high quality movement. But then our, and so that's the Mark II and then the NH3, NH2, NH1, and then more recently the NH55, which is just about to come out at the end, at the end of this year. We're making about 85% of, of that watch. So we, we're making the case. The dial, the hands, so all the external visual elements. But we're also making them a very large proportion of the movement. So we're making the main plate.
0: Why not? Why not that last fifteen percent? What's that? <laughs> well, um, that's that is the question.
1: Um, so is that coming? No, I don't think so, and I don't think it's feasible. Um, that fifteen percent. It's also a very difficult number to actually quantify. I'm just saying it's 15%. You can measure it different ways. You can measure it by weight and then it would be 1% or you can measure it by you know, bill of materials and it would be 15% roughly. Uh, but that includes jewels, springs, uh, in our case, some of the escapement. So we're talking about the balance wheel, the, the pallets forks, um, the s- escape wheel, those sorts of components that are very challenging to make Very, very difficult to make in series as well and the volumes that we would like between, you know, 25 and 100 pieces. And also that they're reasonably off the shelf. So we can buy a jewel, for example, for like two Swiss franc. But for us Uh. to make a jewel might cost us thousands of dollars, you know, and uh, it doesn't make sense. It's like buying a bearing or making a bearing. It's the same quality. They are commodity parts. The Hairspring, for example, is also an incredibly difficult thing to produce in small volumes. If you wanted to, to produce a hundred, you would have a very, very tough time producing. The, the, in fact, the quality of the hairspring actually increases the, mo- the more of them you produce because you batch them. So you make a million and then you sort a million into different grades and you choose the best
0: grade. I understand. So you're making 100% of the, the stuff that's worth making.
1: <laughs> that's that's a very good way of putting it. We're, well, I hate saying 100% of anything, but that's probably the best way of looking. All the parts that we can make that are economically feasible to make and the things that we're, that we're equipped to make, we're making. And, and that's that sort of top end range that we'll be calling the NH series. Uh, so the NH55, for example, it's coming out in a small series of about 10 to 15 watches at the end of the year. And it's about 85% uh, is made in-house in Australia. How much do those cost? We don't have a price, uh, um, which is a ridiculous thing. Uh, the, The backstory of that watch is that we entered it into a competition run by Louis Vuitton. And Louis Vuitton, they organized a competition called the LV Watch Prize for Independent Watchmakers, and it's a worldwide competition where independent watchmakers, so people like Josh, for example, Shapiro and myself, uh, and any other watchmaker in the world that, that was not owned. How much of the watch do you have to make yourself to be eligible? I'm not sure. Uh, there was no concrete stipulation in, in the in the entrance requirements, but I I think the only main stipulation was that your company could not be owned by someone else. So you had to be you. You couldn't, you couldn't be a representative of uh, like a luxury conglomerate. So all these independent watchmakers entered their watches into the competition. The results of that competition are coming out in September for the top 20. And then the winner gets announced in, in January 2024. So we're waiting on the results of that competition. And they sell your watch for like
0: a half a million
1: dollars. <laughs> or Well, it's, it's not an auction. It's just a, a competition. In fact, I mean, if you have two minutes, I'll explain the beauty of the competition, uh, at least the way I've interpreted sure. it.
0: I, before you do that, I want to know, are there any other people in Australia doing what you're doing, making the whole watch?
1: No, not really. I mean, there are a few people that are, that are attempting it, and there are a few people that have, have made elements of watches, but not at the scale that what we're doing.
0: And same with the United States. Are you? Is there anybody in the United States, I mean, maybe Josh is doing a lot of it, but that is doing to the extent you're doing?
1: Uh, well, in the United States, you have more people. You have people like, I mean, I can give a bit of a list and I'm sure I'll leave some people out, but Josh is doing a great job.
0: That's okay. But I mean, you're talking 10, 20. Yeah. Le- far,
1: yeah. Less than 10, I would say. Probably less than five people. And that's that's a function of, of being very distant, very far away from the watchmaking centers of the world.
0: Where are the centers? Your Switzerland's, Germany. your
1: Germany's. Your Japan, like those three, France, France, to a certain extent, it's definitely heavily influenced by Switzerland. So being far away geographically is a big limitation. What about Asia? In Japan, I mean, so China does have a heritage of watchmaking, but it's very focused on high, high volume, low, low price, and which is the complete opposite of what we're doing. Japan also has that history, but they've shifted in the last maybe 20 years, 15 to 20 years into producing extremely high quality watches. So you can go and buy a $100,000 Japanese watch. That's not a problem at all. And um, that's not quite possible in China.
0: Okay. Question. What There's these million dollar watches In, in I see the sign in Oh, a Rashad Mill. Richard Mill why would you pay him I know you could somebody would say why would you pay a thousand dollars for a watch but what's what's in this million dollar watch that they say well it's a million dollars why is it encrusted with gold or I, I don't know and or diamonds I don't know anything about it I'm are you familiar with yeah them? no no I am very familiar and um, I, I could give a, a very
1: detailed answer. The only problem is you're asking the wrong person. I'm I'm an extremely cynical person when it comes to our industry, and I'm (laughs) incredibly technically minded. So my response is going to be so coloured and it's going to be so biased that it's it's probably not even worth uttering. Uh, I can still say it if you if you'd like me to say it. But (laughs) oh, give me,
0: come on, give me the 30 (laughs) seconds. Okay, well you can say it. it. it it costs a million
1: dollars because it costs a million dollars. I think that's the quickest explanation, and okay. someone will pay that because it's a million dollars. So there's a there's a. If you want to read further about this sort of phenomenon, it's called a Veblen good, uh, Veblin good, V E B L I N, and it's a it's a strong, extremely strong signifier of ultra luxury. In the same way that it's like American universities, yes, yes, it's high high level of uh, restriction low, extremely low supply and very, very high demand. And uh, it, in, it inverts where the lower- well, Like Louis Vuitton and- Well, yeah. it's similar to Louis Vuitton, but it's uh, sort of turned up to the 10th level, 11th level, maybe even. This ultra luxury exists in this world because we have a huge wealth disparity. You have people that are multi-billionaires that a million dollar watch feels emotionally- and hurts financially as much as a 1000 dollar watch. If they spend a million bucks or a thousand bucks, it doesn't matter for them. It's about the same. And that that's where ultra luxury sort of steps in. I personally, and this is where I have to caveat, kind of disgusting. I don't see um, a reason for that to exist in our society. I don't think that that's um, morally, I mean, ah, this is why I don't even want to talk about who am I to, you know, morally. But
0: what about paying, what about paying a hundred thousand dollars for, for a watch? Some people would say that.
1: Exactly. And that's where my perspective sort of shifts where at a hundred thousand dollars, you can actually provide a hundred thousand dollars of value. You can. And uh, I, I see that. There is a fine line as well, sort of. How far beyond a hundred thousand dollars is it still acceptable? In and that's why it's so subjective. But at a hundred thousand dollars, you're you're not just buying the feeling.
0: You're you're also buying value, or you can you're you're buying the labor. Yes, the craftsmanship. Yeah, the art. That's it. No, I think you gave me uh, the straight up answer. Um, let's just get a, a couple more questions cause I got to get the hell out. Uh, is there anything else that you feel passionate about that you want to tell the world about what you're doing and, and how you feel about watches and life and et cetera?
1: Um, we've touched on a lot of these broad concepts about life and, and, and more, more than I expected actually. On my 26th birthday, two days ago, I was shopping on eBay just randomly, and I saw this machine called a Zeiss F-25. In 2008, that machine was the most accurate CMM, micro CMM in the world. It was a 0.25 micron uncertainty machine. For those that know, that's an incredible number and, and something that's nigh unachievable. That machine, if you're listening in... That's a, Z- a, a Zeiss. Zeiss. Yeah. Zeiss made this machine in very, very low quantities, and it was in the most accurate thing that they made. And that machine was on eBay selling for parts. To me, that was the most depressing thing I've ever seen. And it was selling for about, I don't know, like 9000 Australian dollars, like 6000 US, somewhere in, in the US. It highlighted to me the overruling, undeniable strength of entropy. Everything ends. Everything has a finite existence. Us, the most accurate CMM in the world, all my machines in the workshop, the watches that I make, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. On my twenty-sixth birthday, that's what I'm faced with. I, I went into an existential spiral, still pulling myself out of it. And maybe you're hearing hints of it through this podcast. But what that's left me with is an incredible appreciation for this present moment. How do you how do you express great gratefulness and an appreciation for your existence right now. Cause that's, that's all you have and waiting till tomorrow to be thankful. I don't think that has a place in my life anymore. So that's what I'm passionate
0: about right now. <laughs> Fun interview. I'm going to check out your, your podcast, um, very shortly and give, give, give everybody, um, another plug for your podcast, your company, et cetera. So people know where to find you.
1: Uh, my name is Josh Hacko. I'm the, I'm the technical director of Nicholas Hacko Watchmaker. You can find us on nicholashacko.com.au and also the technical director of NH Micro. You can find us there on nhmicro.com. Uh, we have Instagrams for both, both of those companies where you can look at photos of the parts and watches we make. And our podcast that I, well, the podcast that I run jointly with Adam Demuth is called the Precision Microcast. And you can find that wherever you get your
0: podcasts fantastic from today's machining world this is swarfcast if you like this podcast please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five star rating and a review and don't forget to tell your friends about it Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.